0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies.
2: Your guide on the side.
1: I would suggest you forge more character. This is the Matt Townsend
2: Show. Dr. Matt
3: Townsend. Good morning. I'm Leanna Tan. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. So I whipped up a great series of episodes for you today, and today's recipes consist of a bit of failure, a dash of trust, topped off with a little discussion on breakfast. You're excited, I'm excited, so let's get started with Matt teaching us four ways we can learn from failure. Have
1: you ever just blown it? Like majorly just blown it. Ah, oh, the embarrassment, the shame. Just the, the blow to your game and to your mindset. But the reality of failure, uh, it's everywhere. We all experience it, and uh, to some degree, you need to experience it if you want to be able to progress and to move on in life. Um, one of the reasons why we bring it up is because uh, we seem to be raising a generation of people that, that think that you know we ought not let our kids fail too much. The, the problem with that is that's not natural. You're supposed to fail. In fact, quite honestly, you better fail, right? Because failure would mean change. Failure means growth. Failure means it's time to figure something out. Wouldn't you need to have failure to actually know what success is? How many times have you seen uh, one of your children maybe had a really great team, an incredible baseball team or whatever, and they just kept winning and winning and winning and winning and winning. And then, you know, they get to a tournament and they get killed. And (laughs) these kids are not used to failure. But failure happens every single day. Uh, Think about the first time you played a sport and it was your chance to win the game on the free throw line. Did that ever happen? Ben, for example, in his dating life,
2: Nothing but failure, right, Ben? Oh, you have no idea.
1: No idea, right? No idea, wrong? So,
2: yeah, my dating life's horrible.
1: Really? Let's talk about it. Just for a minute, what... <sighs> yeah, right? You're breathing through your mouth again. Oh, sorry. So, a little failure. I mean, you're not failing dramatically, right? It's just a little failure.
2: Three restraining orders. Slowly okay, yeah,
1: that's failure.
2: That's, boy... Really, I'm just trying to be nice, you know. Is the th- are the is that three different people? Um, or is that
1: one person? No, you know, it's three been, different it's orders. It's been renewed. Okay, so wow. So
2: one of them's been renewed one time, and then there's a separate one. Yeah, second yeah. one. Huh. We got a
1: yeah. That's weird. Maybe you're pushing too hard. Seems like really? you're pushing too hard.
2: I I just thought like confidence was supposed to. <laughs> is that what you do? You act
1: confident, so confident yeah. that you scare them.
2: I guess so. Yeah, like.
1: See, again, that's a perfect example, Ben. That's why we need failure. You know, the failure to be able to, you know, get a date should teach us something. And there are steps that we need, We should take to help us get through this. There are actual steps that we should learn to make sure that we're not, you know, always just failing. Four keys to learning from failure – by Dr. Guy Winch, who's been on the program two or three times. he uh, He's a blogger on Psychology Today and um, also uh, has this post that made it to Huffington Post, which is four keys to learning from your failure. Now, Ben, I want you to listen up because yes. we're going to use your dating examples as we go through this um, and also just, you know, the the police interventions, the tasing, the stuff like that. As, as a tool to help us through this. Uh, first key that Dr. Winch teaches us in his article, because failure is inherent, right? But there's usually going to be a breakdown that would cause a failure in, in a few areas. So the first area is your planning, right? So if you haven't, if you don't plan, if you don't prepare to plan, you no, know, if you fail to prepare, Then prepare to fail. That's the axiom.
2: But I I do plan.
1: Okay. So obviously, let's evaluate your planning. So for these dates that you – like you keep coming in and saying, I went – I had another date and she didn't show. Had another date and she didn't show. Had another date and she didn't show. So you must not be planning very well.
2: Well, I tell her specifically, drive yourself – to Moab, and I will meet you there.
1: Moab, which is hundreds and hundreds of miles away.
2: Yeah, but, like, she she okay. could probably find her way.
1: Well, yeah, but did you even... Does she even know you at this point?
2: Um, I mean, we sat next to each other a couple times in class. Okay, yeah. See, you,
1: you have to evaluate your planning because it's, A, you have to actually know the woman before she'll go to Moab with you. Okay. B... You usually don't like set up a date that's hundreds of miles away unless you really know each other. And so it usually would be better to pick her up, say, hey, let's drive together. Got a bunch of friends that will be down there. We can hang out. There will be a place for the ladies and a place for the gentlemen.
2: What what happens if you don't have a lot of friends that are going to be there?
1: Then we probably ought not be going to Moab with a lady. See, that's where you're losing it. So if we reevaluate your planning, then – any breakdown, you know, so for the team that didn't win the championship and they were all a little messed up because, boy, that defense that they faced in the championship game blew them away. Then we probably didn't plan very well to have our kids ready for any defense. Right? OK. So it's about a planning problem. So and we we are seeing that that's what's happening to your dating. There's just a failure to plan. So planning, I'm going to. Mark that there, yeah. Planning—you have to spend more time thinking about who this person is. She has to actually know you. You probably ought to be on three or four dates before you take her to Moab.
2: Okay, so how how does she get
1: to know me then? Okay, that would be that would be different. That would be your ex. That would be your um, your execution. So is that step number two? That would be three. Then oh. so so once you have to you have to reevaluate your planning. Did we plan ahead? Then your preparation. Like did you did you date her enough? Did you have your head wrapped around this strongly enough? Were you in the right place? Do you have the communication skills? Do you have the ability to carry a conversation with somebody longer than, you know, 10 minutes? Cuz if you're going to Moab it's going to be a long time together. So failure is your inability to be prepared enough. Do you know who she is? Do you know what ladies like to talk about? Do you know what this lady pre- specifically likes to talk about?
2: Yeah. You so didn't I, prepare. I, well, I, I usually have like um, a, like a list of things I can talk about on the car. Right? Well, I guess if we're taking separate cars, I would never be able to use those. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, and
1: you don't even have a car. True. So, so preparation would say that that plan's not going to work. The minute you're like, "Okay, which car should I take?"
2: You don't have a car. So, if I buy if I buy a car, I should be good on the preparation side, right?
1: What would happen if it started raining in Moab, and you found out that there's going to be storms there all weekend? Do you have another plan? You need another. So, you got to be prepared because what happens if you guys? You know what happens if she does have you arrested? Can you post I'm, I'm bail? very
2: prepared on that front, though, on the rested side. I, I know what to do for that. So what, what our good
1: expert is teaching us is Dr. Guy Winch is that if you have a plan, then you got to make sure you're prepared to implement the plan. Right. You got to be able to deliver on the goods. You got to be able to do what needs to be done. So, again, the basketball team. Do we, do, we have a, do we have a plan, our own game plan? Have I prepared my kids for what could be inevitably changes to the plan? Have we prepared them with other schemes? Have we prepared them? You know Are they in good enough shape? Are they mentally prepared? Do we have all that done? The next tool he teaches is your execution. So it's not enough to just have a really good plan and to have people prepared. Did they execute on what we said we were going to do? And see, if you don't, after the date, go back and learn this, Ben, then you're just going to keep having the same dates over and over. Yeah. Is that what you're noticing?
2: Yeah. I, so I, I like plan out what I'm going to say and like how I'm going to ask her out. But a lot of times it turns into German. And so I start talking to ger- – Okay. Ger- no, so that's huge. Maybe, yeah, your execution's off. Maybe that's why she doesn't come because I tell her mm-hmm. to meet me in Moab yeah. in German.
1: Well, in fact, you got to watch out for that because – you're probably not executing because when you get nervous, you probably go all German on her.
2: That's, that's probably true. Does that make sense? And I mean, it's like it's not a bad thing to be German on her. But no. like If she, she's she German, no. But if yeah. she's
1: not German, it's a okay. bad thing.
2: So speak in English. I, I've planned in English. Mm-hmm. You've prepared. In, okay. Yeah, we were going to do this whole thing in English. Then the next thing you
1: know, you went off all German on her. Nothing wrong with German. Fantastic thing. But you got you to do better. And then last but not least, of course, after you've evaluated your execution of it, is uh, you got to figure out what of everything we talked about you can control. And you can control your German. You can control your prep. You can control how much you know her. You can control these things. And then focus on what you can change, right? Focus on your variables that you can control. It's an easy plan. It's easy, Four Keys to Learning from Your Failure by Dr. Guy Winch.
3: Oh, poor Ben. But Matt did have a good point there. We can't be afraid to fail or let our kids or friends fail because it's necessary to really be able to understand success. Okay, well, coming up, have you ever wondered what the secret is to building a great business? Joel Peterson knows one characteristic that is essential for any business or individual to rise to their potential, and he gives the formula on how to attain it. We'll have that all for you right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, I'm not
1: Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. We have a great guest in studio with us today. Joel C. Peterson joins us. And uh, Joel is a um, – he's – how do we put this? He's an author, but author may very well be the least of his uh, of his accolades. He's a graduate uh, from the School of Business at Stanford University. He's also uh, the chairman of the board of over uh, – of. Uh, By the way, let me name ten companies he's been chairman of the board of, of overseers at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He's the founding partner and chairman of Peterson Partners, a Salt Lake-based investment management firm. He was the chief executive officer of Trammell Crow Company and uh, currently is the chairman of the board at JetBlue. More importantly, maybe for us today, he's the author of the book, The Ten Laws of Trust. Trust building the bonds that make a business great. Joel, thanks for being here with us today. Nice to be with you, Matt. You have a great history also on the board at Franklin Covey Company. I've been on the board at Franklin Covey for 25 years. That's a long that's a long road. Yeah. And of success, yeah. So, talk to us about your book, um, building the bond that make great business great. That's trust, right? So, as a businessman that's uh, succeeded in many of these in many areas, talk about uh, the impact of trust. How, do, by the way, is trust earned? Is trust given? How does how does one acquire trust? And what would you what would you advise these two candidates to do?
4: Well, it's both earned and given. But it can actually be built within an organization. That's the whole reason that I wrote the book Hmm. is because I think you can build organizations that are high trust enterprises and you do that in a specific way. You build guardrails that keep you on the road to building high trust.
1: And and so those are – the guardrails are like uh, rules. Are they – what are they? Patterns? These are what I call the 10 laws of
4: trust. There you go. And uh, so I I think if you kind of read the book and look at these things, you say, wow, these – these actually would build a high-trust organization if people followed them.
1: And it's – I guess part of the key to this is you got to want to, right? You got to – this isn't something that just accidentally happens. You have to intentionally say we are going to be a company of trust. Yeah, and you have to work hard
4: at it. And It's built up a conversation at a time yeah. and can be destroyed with a single act. Oh. So it it's very hard to build. It's one, kind of one-way sticky. Yeah. You know? That's
1: a great way to put it. Yeah. It's one way sticky. Talk about some of those guardrails. Um because I and I've seen it. I've seen it at Franklin Covey and I've seen and uh Stephen M. R. Covey, who wrote the foreword for your book, he's been on the show as well talking about the speed of trust and the efficiency trust brings. Um but again, it's it's something that you have to make intentional. Yeah, you have to care a lot about it. And uh, I think it starts with your
4: own personal integrity. You know, it's hard to trust somebody who doesn't have personal integrity, yeah. where they compartmentalize their lives or where they spin things and they live their life one way privately and another way publicly. Right. It's really hard to build trust right. in, in that uh, kind of a circumstance.
1: And what does, what does trust afford us? What does it give us?
4: Well, it allows for innovation, uh, collaboration. People collaborate in a kind of a seamless way if you trust somebody mm. you don't have you're not you're not checking up all the time you're yeah. not wary you don't have double riveted legal agreements right things go faster as Stephen uh, will say yeah. there's a speed uh, to smart trust and uh, so a lot of things happen
1: and you need that efficiency it seems like to make it in this market it's cuz your competitors can can uh, copy your systems they can steal your people away but they, I guess they can't copy your culture of trust. It's that if you've earned it, that's a competitive advantage.
4: Exactly, and I'm sure Stephen quoted uh, Peter Drucker yeah. saying that uh, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. That's such a great culture. It is, is a great yeah, yeah from a great man. Yeah, and really did. You know Peter? Thing. Did you ever I, get to meet him? I did meet him. In fact, we used to take our partners out to uh, Claremont. Yeah, to to uh, be sit at his feet. He was in his 90s, well into his 90s. Peter Drucker,
1: one of the great kind of organizational behaviorists, one of the great minds in organizational development.
4: Well, beyond that, he was really kind of the father of management, modern management. Yeah, modern management. Isn't that amazing? Yeah.
1: And you got to sit at his feet. What uh, did you did you know your entire life business is what you wanted to create? Not at all. How did you fall into being a chairman of so many companies? You know, uh, I, I actually went
4: through BYU yeah. and I took the LSAT, what was called the GMAT or the ATGSB yeah. at the time, which was is today the called the GMAT. Okay. So uh, you were I thinking took,
1: business school or law no, school? No, I was
4: thinking law school, business school. I took the, um, the GRE, which is yeah, the yeah, graduate records graduate. exam. Right. And I just I took all these tests and, uh, and I happened to score really high on this one so I said well maybe that's that's what I should do, do even when I was there it, you actually made a mistake in your intro you yeah. said I graduated from Stanford Business School I actually graduated from Harvard Business School oh did you really yeah, Is which, that, that's an offense yeah that would make a lot of people but you, I, were,
1: you teach classes at Stanford
4: I've taught at Stanford for 25 years boy it was that hard for you to go to Stanford after Harvard Uh, No, I I love Stanford. And you
1: live near Stanford. uh,
4: Well, we spent part of the year there. I sent five kids through Stanford. Did you? But I also sent three through Harvard Business School. (laughs) Oh, so, wow. We have divided loyalties. Yeah, you do. That's yeah. not bad. Yeah.
1: It could be a bigger problem. Yeah. Um, so as you as you figured out you wanted to do business, did you learn – did you know trust was – was trust always an important idea for you? Like I wrote a book on relationships because relationships always mattered to me. Has trust always been a big part of your life?
4: It has been a big part of my life, but I didn't realize that it would apply so profoundly to business issues. Uh, I – I struggled at the beginning to understand accounting and hmm. read balance sheets and figure out how to do deals. I started out in the real estate business and the job there was to do deals, buy land, yeah. build buildings, lease them up. And so that was really the focus of my energy. And then I realized one day that really to build a great enterprise, you have to have these interpersonal relationships
1: mm-hmm. that are, that are, bu- that are built on trust. Yeah. And it's, um, it's funny because I work with a lot of couples. And once that trust is dissolved, pretty much everything else falls. The understanding, the ability to work together, goal set, growth, development, it all just fades away. It is the foundation. It's very hard to rebuild. Yeah. And, and did you – when you think about it, can you go back now at, that you have the ability of hindsight and think, oh, boy, if I could have this moment again, I probably would have implemented these tools oh, now. yeah. Yeah. But you can't live life no. in reverse. You have to move so forward. You have to
4: move forward and you have to forgive. So everybody you – know, you'll only be betrayed if you trust. Right. If you never trust, you'll never be betrayed.
1: That's true. So, uh, I guess you won't grow either. But
4: you really don't grow much and you don't get very much done. You have yeah. to do everything yourself. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to live in an organization, in a family, in a business organization, or whatever, you have to learn to trust. You have to build these laws of trust and these guardrails that you sort of follow. I love that.
1: Let's talk about some of the guardrails. Uh, the very first one, and you were, you were alluding to it a minute ago, you got to start with integrity, right? So I guess you can't have more trust interpersonally or organizationally than you have integrity personally. And at the top of the organization. A top down.
4: Yeah. It's one of these things that uh, really is driven by the leaders of the enterprise. Now, it could be the leaders of a team or whatever, mm. but the leader really sets the tone. There. And so I think it is having this kind of personal integrity, this not compartmentalizing, but it's also delivering on promises. Yeah. You know, if you have integrity, you deliver on promises. You say you're going to do it. You do it. Exactly. There's no gap. But I think you can borrow trust, just like you can borrow brands. When I'm starting a company, a lot of times you don't have much of a brand. To start with. So you associate with, with others, others who have a great brand yeah. and, and you actually borrow some of what they've earned over the years.
0: But and
1: I guess the end result is you got to get results. So if I promise to get economic growth, then fairly quickly, you need to see economic growth or we won't trust you.
4: Yeah. And you need to stay in contact. With you need to communicate. People need to know what's going on. We're so used to spin. Now, oh. and, and the Internet has yeah. really kind of uh, fuel that whole thing. So most of what you read on the internet, somebody said the other day that it's like a million page really bad book, you know, but <laughs> we're addicted so to it. And oh we, yeah. And so people learn not to trust. We learn to be wary about everything. Right. And so I think you have to you, you have to stay in contact with people. So
1: So integrity is something personally I can do is I cannot promise something I know I can't deliver and I can under promise in order to make sure I am delivering and and make sure it's Legit,
4: And if you're not delivering, if you realize you're going to meet a target, that's not the worst thing in the world as long as you're not hiding it. You know, a a lot of people fail to deliver. And so you can fail for reasons of character, for reasons of not working at it, or for just reasons of we live in a dynamic market. You were unable to perform. That last one will forgive. Yeah. And in many cases, that kind of failure is a preamble to success. Right, right. But If, If you learn, right? If you learn. But you got to keep talking to people. You have to let people know. Mm. So if you keep promising something and not deliver, people pretty soon will learn not to trust. Well, and
1: we are a very forgiving society, it seems like. I mean, you can do a lot. And I mean, we saw it with uh, even a President Clinton, struggled a lot with certain parts of his life and yet was able to regain a lot of levels of trust. I mean, certain parts we may not have ever trusted him fully in. But we're a forgiving country. Just deliver. Yeah. And don't overcommit, which I guess is the politician's problem. Yeah. Another thing you brought up as we talk about the Internet being a big a billion page book that <laughs> is just nasty um, is we have to invest in respect. It seems like we, we don't respect each other like we used to.
4: Yeah, if you ever read some of these pages, uh, blogs and responses, uh-huh. it is outrageous oh. what people say when they're anonymous. Uh-huh. Yeah, when you're behind your closed door sitting there in your robe. Yeah, which says a lot of people don't have a fundamental, profound respect for other human beings mm-hmm. and points of view. And uh, I think it's very difficult to build a high-trust culture where you don't have the kind of yeah. respect for others.
1: Well, and. But what's so funny about what you're teaching us here – again, we're speaking with Joel Peterson, author of the book The Ten Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds That Make a Business Great, is he's – you're also the chairman of JetBlue and other organizations, um, chairman of the board. These Some of these principles, Joel, seem so, um, so soft, but they pro- you're saying they produce hard results – as well, Yeah, I think they're very hard edged. I yeah. think they feel soft
4: because people have a misunderstanding of trust. They think it's this soft. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like you. Therefore, I yeah, trust you. Right. It's really you're looking at is somebody competent? Do they have high character? Yeah. And do they have the authority to deliver those three measures? If all three measures are not
1: there, you shouldn't trust them. So trustworthiness then in your eyes is character. Uh, I guess do what you say you're going to do. Exactly. Competency, the know how. And authority, I guess the, the position, the place, the, the right. Yeah, the, the ability to actually yeah. deliver. You, know, you may have high character and high competence, but you don't really ha- you're you not empowered right, to deliver. There's right. no point in trusting you. It's so interesting, huh? Because when we go to a doctor, if they're not board certified, they may not have the authority be, to be doing certain surgeries or whatever, or they may not be competent at it.
4: Or they, or they may not be able to get into the hospital and have access to the, to the, to the operating room. room.
1: Yeah. So you're going to do it in the so back of there competent, motor able, Yeah, you're going to do it
4: in the, in the back seat of the car.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's not a good idea. Not a good idea. Um, we're learning a lot here with Joel C. Peterson in his book, The Ten Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds That Make a Business Great. Um, wonderful insight from a true expert. Um, sit back, folks.
3: back to the show. So we just heard Joel Peterson talk about how trust in any organization is vital because it allows for innovation and collaboration. He said that the formula for what people are looking for when they're determining if they can trust you or not is your competence, character, and authority. So let's finish up that interview and listen to how Joel says we can implement trust into our own personal and business lives.
1: You do not have to be a shark. To be successful in business, what you really need is trust. He wrote the book, The Ten Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds That Make Business a uh, to that make a business great. Joel, we appreciate you being here with us. It's great to be here, Matt. Five kids, huh? Seven kids. Seven. Five daughters. Five
4: daughters, that's yeah. what I heard. Two sons.
1: Seven kids. And I mean everything you're teaching would apply to the boardroom, apparently, but also just the the main line at business. And also at home.
4: Yeah, I think trust. You know, if your kids don't trust you, if your wife
1: doesn't trust you, you're gonna have a hard time having oh, a great home culture. No, then well, then you have to explain everything. Yeah, low trust cultures pay a high tax. They pay a huge tax. Huge tax. So you talked about ten. Uh, I guess you call them basically. They're 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 like freeway. It's what keeps us in the freeway. Right. We wanna we wanna make sure that we stay in the game. You've talked about integrity, investing in respect. Talk about uh, your your section on um, empowering everyone. Empowering seems like one of those words that we throw out there. That's kind of you know fluffy again. It's I'm here to give you the power. How does trust create empowerment? Well, you, uh, if
4: you don't uh, trust somebody, you won't empower them. But you, yeah. you have to trust in increments. Yeah. So at some point, you have to give somebody a little bit of power. And what that means is you have to give them responsibility and accountability. They have to know what's being measured. Go. It feels like the opposite of trust when you say, here's what you've right. got to do. Here's the measurement. I'm going to check up on this. But it actually enhances trust. And then as they deliver on that, you can give out more trust
1: and keep empowering people. So that's part of it, I guess, too, is you, you uh, empowerment. With me, I've always thought of the M side of it. The within, the power is already in my sixteen-year-old to be able to accomplish life, to learn to drive. But I got to get in him enough to figure out how I can help him set the the rules, the guidelines, the boundaries to succeed and yeah, to eventually resp- get his license.
4: Exactly, how to do it responsibly. Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and that's that really is a leadership skill. Because totally. some aren't going to empower others. They they almost want to they want to you know protect their their power keep the power instead of disseminating it getting it out well, there well
4: they think it makes them more powerful if they hoard power mm. and it's just the opposite Uh, Stan McChrystal, the four star general who uh, headed Afghanistan, was on our board at JetBlue. And we were discussing one time empowering people because he found that he had all these Delta Force, Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, et cetera. And he found that he had to push power out as deep into the organization as possible. So they were making decisions in the field. Interesting. and, And he said he did it until it hurt.
3: Until it hurt. Yeah. Yeah.
4: And I think that's really how great organizations develop high trust. You know, if they're accountable, if they deal with breaches, uh, they can continue to push power out into the organization.
1: That seems like a great way to know if you are if you're trusting enough people is if it hurts. I mean, because it should be just as hurtful or potentially harmful that these Delta forces could act that and General McChrystal has to respond if they blow it. There, yeah. So it, cre- it demands this mutual trust that I know you're skilled enough, you've proven it, and I'll give you enough power to make me hang.
4: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that – I mean that's a great way to say it, mutual trust. Yeah. And I think that's when trust is really its most powerful, when it is interdependent, when it's reciprocal. Yeah. And those are the most powerful partnerships. Those are the most powerful marriages. The most powerful businesses are where there's reciprocal trust. It's like people being belayed on a cliff. Right. Right. You know, they basically are roped together. Their survival depends on each other. When you develop that level of trust, you can do things that you could not even think of.
1: And you're not saying you just give them that. You're saying you hold them accountable.
4: Absolutely. You
1: set some guidelines, you let them live up to a level, and then you can elevate the level and we elevate the responsibility.
4: Exactly. I think if you have a project in a business, you have a budget, you have a timetable, you have specific deliverables, and then whoever is the champion of that budget then gets measured against those things. Yeah. And that is a measure of trust. It's not the opposite. You just say, go build a building, right. uh, and I'll trust you to do it. it. That isn't trust. You've got to have these other measures. Proved. To have
1: to. And, and I guess there is – then there's the accountability, but the accountability – just becomes a validation of trust, really, like, yeah, yeah, you did it.
4: it proves it up, and then it allows you to then trust more the next time, uh-huh. so you build on if you think about you 're building it a layer at a time, a molecule at a time, a conversation at a time, a delivered project at a time hmm. you 're building trust
1: with that party do you sense in corporate America, in the business world is is trust going up, is trust going down? Where are we in the trust factor of? Of our leaders. It seems like a lot of institutions we don't trust anymore. It seems like a lot of businesses we don't trust. Yeah, we've
4: lost trust in a lot of people, in a lot of leaders, and a lot of businesses. Uh, but I don't think you can generalize. I yeah. think there are some that are just wonderful organizations that are very high trust. You could turn your life over to them. Right. I think uh, just as most doctors, you know, you'd say you could really tr- – and we do trust our right. rights to doctors. Every once in a while, you'll find one that doesn't have a degree or is doing something outside of the bounds. But that that shouldn't tar everybody. Right. They get We're a lot of press. But... Writing
1: a letter for Donald Trump that seemed a little <laughs> weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's like – I guess that's the key, isn't it? It's a, it's a personal thing. It, trust is – And I could have it with a company, right? So if a company harmed me, if a company did something, they didn't treat me right as a customer. I might not trust the company, but it's probably really an employee
4: probably I is. don't trust. Although the company,
1: uh, if or it learns about
4: it, should step in. Yeah. You know, companies correct those things. You know, at JetBlue, we left people stranded on the tarmac. About, I remember that. Yeah, Blood everybody remembers that. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've tried to <laughs> make everybody forget. Right. But basically, David Nealeman, our founder and CEO, yeah. is one of the wonderful mm-hmm. human beings and great entrepreneurs in the airline industry. He basically came up with a bill of rights. For customer it wasn't the government that came in and made him do it he just he apologized yeah and he came up with this customer bill but rights. joel
1: wasn't that just a big pr move heck no no that was i know i know, uh, know neilman's family and no that was probably his mother <laughs> 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 or his father saying knows him
0: it may have been that, their like, voices in you, his ear that's
1: right you but, uh, you treat people right yeah how powerful yeah. Well, i mean i guess again that's the top-down model yeah Another point you bring up about trust is you got to keep everyone informed.
4: I think this is vital. It's very hard to have a high-trust organization if you're hiding things. Mm -hmm. So what that means to me is you have to tell good news and bad news. You have to talk before, during, and after events. A lot of times people just deal with the event and they try to spackle over it. La, la, la. And that actually destroys trust. Yeah. So, So true. Yeah, if it's you'll let so people true. know that here's a bad thing that happened, here's how we're dealing with it. By the way, here's how we dealt with it. Uh, that actually builds trust. So bad events are not necessarily trust destroying.
1: Well, and again, if I don't trust you, then I won't tell you. Yeah. So if you're not getting a lot of information, it might be that people around you don't trust you. How do we as um, a general like population trust a leader? Um, is there stuff we can do? To, to help our ability to trust somebody enough to elect them?
4: Well, uh, you know, I've often wondered. I've actually talked to several candidates in the past. Uh, yeah, they need to have you on board. Well, I, I've talked to them about, you know, not do, using all this negative messaging. Yeah. And the problem is they say that every single political consultant says that the negative messaging is all that scores points. Uh, Positive messaging or neutral messaging right. scores no points at all. So I think in this uh, media-driven sort of gossip hive yeah. we live in, bad news gets totally. the front page.
1: Right. Because it's it it resonates. It, it takes care of our fear. Once you've yeah. got the fear taken care of, then we'll – Go to the hope. Well, it's it's very – fear is very powerful. Force yeah. and fear are extraordinarily
4: oh. powerful in the short run mm-hmm. as is reward. Right. And if you really want to start relying on things like duty and love, those are much – they're much more powerful.
1: Yeah. They're much stickier, but they take a lot of time to time. build up. But they also give you huge advantage long term. Yeah. So it, you, I guess as a leader, that's what everyone has to decide is am I willing to to build the long term – you know, kind of not the softer skills, but really, they're really the more human skills.
4: Yeah. And I think in our uh, financial markets, we're measured by quarterly results, yeah. which doesn't encourage people Mm-mm. to think about the long term. That's right. It's interesting. In today's market, there are a lot of companies that are not going public. They're staying private. In fact, there's 148 really? what we call billion dollar companies that would normally right. would have gone public a long by time now, ago. And they're not out. doing it. They're just doing it. They're staying private. Part and, of that's due to regulations. Yeah,
1: why? I guess they can then run it any way they need to without as much disclosure?
4: Well, they don't have as much oversight, as much regulation, mm-hmm. as much government intervention. So consequently, they they feel more empowered and they can raise the capital privately. Huh. There's debt capital available. Yeah. and uh, But the problem with that is it actually exacerbates the income differential because uh, pension funds cannot invest in private. They have to invest in public shares. So we're actually doing the opposite of what politicians say they want to do.
1: We're harming ourselves. Yeah.
4: Inadvertently. So I think not understanding second and third order consequences is another way to destroy trust. Mm -hmm. Inadvertently, maybe naively and or innocently, but it's every bit as trust destroying.
1: Well, and it's because we hear so much about Wall Street, the corrupt Wall Street. And I mean, it might make sense why... No one wants to go there. No yeah. one wants to play.
4: And I've dealt with Wall Street for 44 yeah. years. And, as uh, an executive, too. As an executive. I borrowed money from them. I worked with them. And it, truly, greed does drive a whole lot of what happens there. But there's a lot of high-character individuals where their word is their bond, uh, really good professionals there. Mm. So I think we tend to tar people with a brush. We have a media kind of a look at things
1: that uh, isn't very accurate. So true. Well, we appreciate you coming to see us, Joel.
3: What a great message. So it's not just about stacking your resume to make it to the top in business, but actually taking the time to build those real human emotional intelligences and character traits that will really set you apart. Well, we have another great message to top off today's program. I grew up eating like rice and herbal tea for breakfast because I come from an Asian family and my friends always thought that was a little bit weird. But I always wondered where this idea of having bacon and eggs and toast for breakfast came from because when I went to my friends' houses and tried it, I always felt like 10 pounds heavier by the time I even reached the door. Well, I was listening back on this segment, and I heard our friend Ron Hager busting the myth of bacon and eggs for breakfast, and I had to share it with you guys. So, take a listen.
1: That's the music for the health evangelist. He's here. Bringing the spirit of goodness and joy. Just get healthy, folks. Today, Dr. Ron Hager's back with us. He's an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. He's an expert in chronic disease prevention and is here today to talk about American Breakfast. Mm. You like your
0: new song? Um, American? Yeah, that is a pretty cool song. You're the evangelist. We're going to get that every time? Every time. Wow. I'm looking forward to this more now than ever. See, we used to call
1: you Death Preventer. Yeah. That was kind of like a dementor. That was a, seemed more negative. Kind of a downer. Health evangelist. <laughs> okay. And with that music, you have us all tapping our toe. It, so personally, I'm a breakfast guy. If I could choose anything, I'd rather have an omelet. Yeah. Well, omelets are good. Just stacked with goo.
0: Yeah. yeah especially if it's like a an omelet bar, right? They call it now. Yeah. Where, Where there's like 35 different things. You you, custom make it. You get to pick whatever Mm -hmm. you want on it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You don't get that very often.
0: No, you don't. And and when you do, it's hard to afford it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's totally true. It's a buffet usually. It it seems like we talked about breakfast cereals and um, we also talked about, you've talked to us forever about calories and how to watch your calories and don't drink your calories. Juices. There's a lot of juice people drink in the morning. That was sold to us for years that that's how you wake up. Well, a lot of this has to
0: do with marketing, uh, Matt. And, you know, when you think of the All-American Breakfast, and you can even go to certain restaurants and they have on their menu the All-American Breakfast or the Grand Slam Breakfast or whatever, you know, as if you – you know, in order to be an appropriate patriot, you know, you have to eat this kind of breakfast. Um, But in, in the 1920s, the Beech Nut Packing Company, a meat packing company, hired a man named Edward Bernays who in his obituary was called the father of public relations. And he was also Sigmund Freud's nephew, hmm. and so he had this idea of incorporating, you know, some of his um, uh, uh, uncle's uh, psychoanalytic uh, approaches with public relations, marketing, and advertising. And they hired him because they wanted their bacon sales to increase, <laughs> and so <laughs> to so, protect their bacon. So, so Edward Bernays uh, went to the company's physician, and a lot of big companies they have yeah. an in-house doctor went to the company's physician and he said, doesn't it make sense that after a long night's sleep without any energy intake that a hearty breakfast of bacon and eggs would be good for a person? Well, this physician, I mean, what's he going to sure. say? Well, of course he's going to say sure. I mean, I mean, he's working for the company, right? Right. So Edward Bernays says, well, would you please send a letter to 5,000 doctor colleagues and ask them uh, if they could support this as well? So this is research. Oh, brother. And so not all 5,000, but nearly 5,000 doctors report back and say, yeah, you know, that makes sense. Let's go with that. And so it started to hit the newspapers, the magazines, and other media outlets that physicians all across America – suggests that for your health after a long night's sleep with no energy consumption a hearty breakfast of bacon and eggs would be good for you this is where it came from and nearly 100 years later we still buy into it it. and i see this all the time i see uh commercials on tv in magazines uh heard on the radio and uh like like a car commercial for example it used to be and i remember the days when you listened to a car commercial or saw a car commercial And it was all about the attributes of that car. Mm. Now you can watch a car commercial and not a single thing is said about the direct attributes of the car. Right. It's all about that that feeling like. Yeah. It's all about the, you know, if you love your family, you'll have this car. Or if you want to impress your neighbors, you'll have this car, you know, or or whatever. And this is done with food now, too. Um, You know, and, and. you know, I talked to a woman not not too long ago, a mother, she told me that all she could get her 8-year-old to eat was uh, chicken nuggets. Yeah. And and she acted, you know, and sometimes they're in the, actually the shape of dinosaurs, which was always dinosaur nuggets. To me. Yeah. Those
1: are those are incredible. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so but she was concerned, you know, she she acted like if she didn't give her son what he wanted, he would starve to death. Right? Um it, you know, and and so then you might ask yourself, well, what's in a chicken nugget anyway? And so I looked at some of the ingredients on the list. And so in a chicken nugget, depending on which brand you're looking at, there's more than 30 different ingredients <laughs> in a chicken nugget, many of which I couldn't even pronounce. And more the nugget
1: than the chicken.
0: Yeah. So 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 think about this, too, when it comes to this idea of, you know, thinking a little more about what you're eating. Um, recent data have shown that uh, the food and beverage industry, that their marketing budget annually is 7 billion dollars holy cow marketing marketing just to marketing food and beverages seven billion dollars if you combine that with restaurant marketing uh the total is over 11 billion dollars now who spends seven billion dollars marketing a product well a company that
1: makes 100 billion who's making
0: 100 billion exactly right because seven billion is a drop in the bucket now now think about the National Five a Day Program, and for those people who don't know what that is, because you may not have ever heard of it, because their marketing budget <laughs> isn't that much, right? It's an effort to get people to eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. There are uh, state initiatives for that, as well as a national uh, initiative for that. Uh, the Fruit and Vegetable Campaign was allotted four point eight million dollars. Oh. Now you compare four point eight million yeah. to seven billion. That's and why... What is going to be in your head? Right, so so the idea here, I guess, you know, because you want you want to know, well, okay, so what do I do about all this? Um, well, th- think about this. You can never eat or drink enough of what you don't need, because what you don't need can s- never satisfy you. Okay, <laughs> it's true. So it's just a thought. It's just you, a, it's just kind of it a, won't party, she, a, a party. That's crazy. But yeah, but, but how effective is this marketing from 1977 to 2002? Savory snack consumption in children increased 320%. Pizza consumption increased 413%. Candy consumption increased 180%. And vegetable consumption decreased 42%. Okay, when was the last time you saw an amazing advertisement or commercial for a vegetable Oh yeah, no. A, a whole vegetable. The only time you ever see it is when it's processed chip. by a company, yeah. and yeah. put in a box, mixed with other things, right. and it's processed in some way, and then it's sold to you because you there, there's there's no money really. That's
1: in, 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 in whole in Whole Foods. Oh, see, so you <laughs> just said that again, Ron. You make a great point. We got to buyer beware. We got to figure out, and we we got to we just got to take our lives back. And that's why I love having you on um okay so basic point use common sense common sense use common sense and
0: and if it if it doesn't make sense a red flag should go up and you should ask some questions because i'm telling you the food and beverage industry they may say that they're concerned about your health but they have absolutely no concern for your health at all otherwise they would not be hiding all this data. All this data.
1: Great, great point. Dr. Ron Hager again, Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences at BYU. Thanks so much.
3: You know, you can never go wrong with the radio segment about bacon. I feel like part of me wants to tell all those elementary kids from my past, I told you so. It's an amazing how marketing can do that and just morph an entire country's culture like that. Well, besides the fact that bacon and eggs actually isn't that great for you for breakfast, I think that we've heard a lot of great messages today, like that failure is actually a natural part of life and helps us learn how to be successful, that being a shark in the big world of business isn't really the thing that's going to help you rise to the top, but rather trust, and that you can never eat enough of what you don't need because it will never satiate you. Well said, everyone. Well, thanks for listening to today's programming. We'll be back tomorrow with more Matt Townsend.